the Cinematologist podcast. Plan 75. In this episode, Neil accepts an invitation from the Dead Good Film Club and the Death Online Research Network to host a screening of recent Japanese film Plan 75 at Newcastle's Tyneside Cinema as part of the 6th Death Online Research Symposium at Northumbria University. The title of the conference was Death Futures, and following the screening of Plan 75, Neil hosted a Q&A with Kate Owens-Palmer, Emma Satchel, and Dr. Mark Lee, centred around the film's theme of assisted dying. Elsewhere in the episode, Neil talks to Andy Jones of the Dead Good Film Club about his work both as a filmmaker, film programmer, and funeral celebrant. Special thanks also to Andrew Simpson at the Tyneside Cinema for his hospitality. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and with me, not down the ether, as usual, but in the room, is Neil Fox. Neil, it's great to actually see you in person. Welcome. Hello. Uh, yeah, thank you for the welcome. Thanks for letting me sleep on your floor. And yeah, <laughs> My pleasure. It, it's great to see you. Um, I was trying to... I was trying to remember the last time I saw you, and we did... We saw each other at all. I'm trying to think, was it maybe late 2021? For Possibly. A it's been a while. But I think that they also, it was another, we did another version like this. But I can't quite remember. Maybe I should have done that research. No, I Sorry, can't remember. No, no, no. podcasting. <laughs> no, I, just, I was just thinking, like, I literally cannot remember. It feels like a long time ago since we were in a, in a room together. So it is, a, yeah. it's really nice to be here um, doing this, yeah, doing this across the table. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird one as well because you can do all of the interrupting and the sort of you know reacting to physical gestures and you know looking at someone's face properly it's weird how yeah Riverside FM's great but it still doesn't quite live up to you know Memorex is not quite as good as live let's put it that way no no it's really nice yeah and uh wondering what will feel different about it having not done it for ages yeah yeah so and this is um interestingly you know we're going to indulge in the time travel aspect of uh, podcasting now so we're, we're going to record a couple of intros to our next two episodes um and a bonus as well so we're taking the opportunity to really milk the talking to each other <laughs> aspect so this first installment is an episode that you've put together on the back of a a trip that you made with your partner to a particular kind of academic arena, which is really interesting. And the, the, the tape that's come out of it is, you know, is, is evidence of that, I think. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Beth, my wife, had a conference at Northumbria University, which, and this, these are a lot of acronyms and, and sort of groups involved, so I'll just, I'll just go through them. So the Death, the death Online Research network um had their sixth annual death online research symposium now it's not online it's a kind of death online so that's the that's sort of the grouping there 
this was the sixth virgin it was called death futures and beth was up there in a number of guises she was recording for her podcast the death studies podcast and presenting a paper with a colleague uh, from australia on the tv show upload and uh, also representing the journal mortality that she's um, an associate editor for and uh, assistant editor for sorry and the Association for the Study of Death and Society. So she had a busy week and I was on uh, childcare for the week, um, which was lovely. Uh, me and the kids had a really nice time in Newcastle. Part of the conference was a screening of Plan 75, which is this recent Japanese film, which was at Cannes last year, um, which has amongst its themes, the theme of assisted dying um, as a kind of corporate uh, government policy. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, so Stacey uh, Pitsalidis, who um, was one of the conference conveners, was sort of talking to Beth about it, and Beth said maybe Neil could 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 do something. And the film sounded interesting. I remember it sort of being around last year, and I thought, yeah, that would be a good be a good thing to do because, as you sort of said, like it's 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 an area that we haven't really covered on the podcast, and also that you know is is just kind of fascinating and interesting. Um, so yeah, so I, I hosted a Q&A for the screening of Plan 75, which was presented in association with the Dead Good Film Club, um, who are a kind of Newcastle-based uh, film club, uh, screening films about death and dying and grief and talking about them, uh, which is a really interesting interesting film club. Yeah, and the, I, it's, the, the Q&A, I think, is, is interesting because they're not, quote unquote film people you know and that's nothing against them of course um but they're coming very much from sort of and in fact i'm not sure that, that all of them were death studies academics in that sense where well, they weren't but it, it really sort of made for an interesting experience i think for you in q a but also in reacting to the film and where i think there's an interesting question about where non-film people when they see a film and how they link it to their specific agenda or um you know philosophy or ideology re regarding a, a, a subject as emotive and difficult as as death really yeah for sure and there, there were academics there but yeah as you say the the panel was not an academic panel per se you know there was there was a there was someone who's who's published sort of academic research into palliative care but he's also he also works in palliative care, uh, and the other panel members, yeah, were kind of representatives of Humus UK and a, and a, and a minister and celebrant um, uh, of, sort of funerals um, and, and someone who also works in in care. So it was it was very much a kind of yeah people working with working with people at the end of their life, uh, and then and those people were also at the conference. Uh, you know, sort of those sort of people working in both academia and in in, in social care, um, as well as sort of academics. So it was a really interesting mix, um, as, as as I think conferences often are nowadays. I think there's, there's a much more sort of interdisciplinary approach to conferences um, than I think there may have been in the past, where it was just academics talking about it. There seems to be more, but I think that's that's because there's a lot of people shifting over from you know from uh, what would be called industry uh, into academia, um, and I think it makes for a really interesting conversation in terms of the amount of perspective you can get at it but the panel was definitely convened as people working you know in the field as it were rather than just academia yeah and i think that that was appropriate because as well that there's quite a lot that comes up in terms of the the social construction of the processes around death mm, let's put it that yeah, way yeah. and 
it's an interesting film, um, and obviously Neil and I will talk about it at the end of the Q and A and react to some of the the things that were said in the Q and A. But but I think it's an interesting film to to discuss anyway, um, from a you know a generic aesthetic standpoint, which we'll do. Um, but then you've also got another piece of tape, another interview that you did before that to come before that, I should say. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk to Andy Jones, who runs the Dead Good Film Club. Um, he seems like a really interesting person. And he was the one who sort of I worked with in the run up to just sort of uh, work out what was going to go on. And uh, so we just grabbed sort of 10 minutes in the Tyneside Cinema Bar beforehand so he could let me know about the Dead Good Film Club and sort of, yeah, life, uh, sort of cultural life in Newcastle. So let's go. Should we go to that now? Yeah, let's go to that now. Tyneside Cinema with Andy from the Dead Good Film Club who is currently wondering why on earth he invited this idiot <laughs> to host his screening of Plan 75. Hello just Andy. To, just to set the scene, I think we should tell everyone what's been going on. We've, this is now take four, take four of our little chat and every they've been brilliant by the way, numbers one, two great. and three. I've really, I've really enjoyed them. And then we turn out that you were recording to the hard drive rather than the memory card. Yeah. So it only gets a minute. That does mean you should... In the, oh, no. Will you have a minute of each one of them? I'll have a minute of each one of them. That's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got three trailers for the main event now. Um, yeah, so we figured it out, and Andy has been kind enough to sit here and put up with it for three goes now. So this is the fourth go. I'm just keep checking. We're still going. It's gone past... <laughs> it just hit the minute... We're over the minute. Good. Um, yeah, and we're in this beautiful cinema uh, preparing for a screening as part of Andy's Dead Good Film Club. So, Andy, the Dead Good Film Club. The Dead Good Film Club. The Dead Good Film Club um, began with a conversation between myself, my friend Andrew, who works here at the Tyneside, and then another Andrew who runs the events at Newcastle Library. And they'd just been doing a programme of events through the death positive libraries thing with Redbridge and another one that I forgot the name of. And we were just talking about, wouldn't it be great to show films and get people talking about death? And they said, yeah. And, and so we started, we just thought we'd give it a go and see, and see if people would come. Yeah. And it turns out they have. So this is, yeah, we've done two in the library. This is number three in the Tyneside and um, yeah, each time is just getting bigger and bigger so far so it's great amazing um, and yeah considering the kind of the canon of films about death uh, across cinema you've so far plucked from your know, really recent releases yeah and I don't I, I don't think that was the idea to start I think when, when, when I sort of you know you have to write a couple of pages to tell people what you're thinking of and I was pulling out films I knew of or films that I um, either classics or you know the Seventh Seal, or um, ones that I'd always wanted to see but hadn't quite got to. There's a Bill Drummond film called Best Before Death that I really wanted to get that was supposed to come during COVID. And then, and Andrew just sort of looked at the release schedule, and we were looking for an event to launch with, and so we ended up launching with with Living. Yeah. Um, and obviously that that was just perfect because it's got well you know it's got the library connection because it's based on a. Tolstoy novella so we started with a improvised reading of extracts from the death of Ivan Ilyich at the library and then we 
we had a coffin made for the launch, so we kind of carried this cardboard coffin from Newcastle City Library across to the Tyneside, which is, it's only about 300 metres, but it's down the kind of busiest shopping street yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. Newcastle that we did at like yeah, six o'clock on a Thursday yeah. afternoon. Uh, uh, and then arrived at the Tyneside and showed living, and we'd invited sort of people from across the kind of film and library network, and then also people from the funeral sector, from palliative care, hospices, and we've also got a centre for ageing in Newcastle. So just looking at all the kind of people who might be having different conversations, but maybe not coming together to have those conversations. And, that, and that's how it began. And, that, and then it went on. So the last one was Alleluia, where I, I would suggest maybe the conversation was more... No, I, I love that film. And, and then the twist was just a bit out of kilter yeah. with the rest of it. I'm not, are we allowed to do spoilers? You can do spoilers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't watch the end of it. Don't watch the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't spoil it for yeah. yourself. Yeah. Um, um, great. So yeah, so the, so it's interesting. Like you've got a nice range of panelists each time. Yes. Um, what about the conversation in the audience? Though, what's are the audience responding to the films or the themes or a mix of both? I think I think it's definitely a mix of both, and hopefully you'll find that out when you host the panel this evening. I think it's probably quite typical. So tonight we've got. Uh, specialist consultant who works in palliative care who's written academic papers on assisted on suicide within that kind of palliative context we've got a Methodist chaplain who again works in a hospice setting but also works as a funeral celebrant and also a kind of calls herself a, a, a death educator so she does she does get mortal parties and, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Emma and then and then Kate who's a member of the Humanists UK network of celebrants who obviously outside of the work they do with births and marriages and deaths are leading on the kind of national conversation around yeah. assisted dying in the UK and the campaign for that so and I think you know the panel and it's kind of deliberate to grow the audience you know hopefully we bring in panellists who've got their own networks of people who want to come yeah. as well yeah. like, but last time we had um, campaigners from Keep Our NHS public it's obviously it's you know reflecting the the messages or the, the, the themes within the films and trying to sort of join up the the, the screen and, and society I guess if you like and have you um, you mentioned before like you know you haven't really screened any classic films have you got any films you particularly want to bring to the Dead Good Film Club I'd look it'd be really nice to do Akiru just have, having done Living and show yeah, yeah. Akiru and what was really interesting was at the screening of Living, uh, a chap came up afterwards and said, I used to teach pathology at the medical school and we back you know, back in the day and they used to show the students Akiru okay. before they did wow. their kind of first is it called dissection? No, Maybe, yeah, I don't yeah. know what it's called when yeah, yeah. their first What's it called? You know when you cut up a dead body. I think it's dissection, but that's some animals, but I guess yeah. it's someone will know. Yeah, yeah. So, so, someone so here should because it's the know. Death Online Research Symposium that's the screening's part of. So someone here will know. So autopsy. Autopsy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That would be right. Is that what it is? Yeah. Post. Anyway. Autopsy, yeah. Anyway. So. Yeah. The, so. No. But he was using film within this kind of clinical medical yeah, training yeah. setting. What else? Really want to show. Um, a, not a classic, but maybe will become one. Uh, Best Before Death, a Bill Drummond okay, film yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of fell between the gaps because it came out during COVID. Real shame. Yeah. Um, there's the seventh seal. I think someone said we should do. 
I think screening that'd be great. roles. Yeah, that would be great. Um, yeah, it's the obvious one, but I think it's for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then also, when we do the library ones, we've done maybe some of the more smaller independent films that haven't had a cinema yeah. release. So we showed last time a film called Death Dinner, which was... Um, a film made on an Arts Council grant where somebody just invited um, a dozen people from different perspectives to come to dinner dressed in the clothes they would like to be either buried or cremated in and with an object that they would like to be cremated with as well or buried with and they just had an hour long, well it's edited into an hour long film just talking about what people would like to happen when they die and Lovely. we just did that and drank tea and ate cake and, and chatted about what we'd like and it was Great. Sounds perfect. Fascinating. So, uh, yeah, you've sort of just been waving because you've got some people that you know arriving, so I won't keep you too much. Oh, this longer. is this is our repla- This is our backup Zoom. Excellent. In case yours didn't work. In case, which we know it doesn't <laughs> now. So that's always good. Thank you very much so, for bringing the Zoom. That's all good. Um, so yeah, just a quick note because I noticed that you're here um, hosting this event when a film of your own is screening somewhere else in the city. I know. So we're not almost. We're, so a film that I co-produced, a film called Eureka, which is a Swedish documentary which is the, a courtroom drama based on the case of a Swedish mining giant who end up polluting an entire city in Arica in Chile oh, wow. so it came out uh, it was another Covid film so it launched at IDFA during Covid it has had a UK cinema release uh, about this time last year so we had a screening here at Tyneside but tonight it's showing at Another independent cinema in Newcastle, uh, the volunteer-run Star and Shadow, a wonderful, wonderful place where once a month they have a community kitchen and screen of films. So Fantastic. everybody brings a bit of food, people cook Amazing. together, uh, people can make donations of either food or money or just come and eat and watch a film for free. So I pay what you can afford. So that's, um, that's screening as well Fantastic. this evening so it's like London buses yeah it always um, and it's been really nice to spend a couple of days in Newcastle and see how vibrant the city is in terms of arts and culture film obviously the Tyneside and people haven't heard the Tyneside big campaign at the moment to save the cinema the the rent is tied oh. to the RPI so and as with lots of venues the cost of heating it and yeah. so on and, yeah. and audiences not quite returning in pre-pandemic numbers so there's a big crowdfunding campaign going on to save the Tyneside keep it going past the summer we'll get that link in the notes as well uh, love Tyneside cinema I think right. Hashtag, um, so that's going on and then obviously Star and Shadow which is yeah, volunteer run so less overheads but you know still yeah. needs love and support but also it's not just film you know music we've got two great independent theatres in the city where at the moment they're doing uh, there's a a stage version of I Daniel Blake. Wow. Okay. So the, the film that yeah. is now a, it's gone it's gone the other way. It's yeah, gone from yeah. the film to the stage, Amazing. and that's been getting standing ovations for every performance so far. Fantastic. Uh, and some great wraparound events. A whole I mean, independent music video uh, music venues of you know anything from thirty to a couple of hundred in size, from you know the the Lover Fiend to Cobalt and the Cumberland and. The Clooney, which is maybe a bit more established, but it's yeah. Um, yeah, and you can walk to everywhere. I know it's lovely. So, well, on that note, welcome. let's walk to see some people and get ready for our screening. Thanks, Perfect. Andy. No worries. Cheers. Thanks, Andy, and thanks to Andrew at the Tyneside for giving us a little corner in which to record that chat four times. Up next is my Q and A 
with Dr. Mark Lee, Emma Satchel and Kate Owens-Palmer from the Tyneside Cinema in association with the Dead Good Film Club and the Death Online Research Network. I'd like to welcome our panel. Thank you. Thank you very much. So should we just go along and introduce ourselves and let everyone know who we are? Uh, I'm Neil. I'm Emma. I'm an um, independent funeral celebrant. I'm a chaplain and a death educator. Hello, I'm Kate. I'm a Humanists UK celebrant and a mentor and a trainer for Humanists UK. My name is Mark Lee. I'm a consultant in palliative care and have been for uh, in palliative care for around 25 years. I've been a consultant for um, the last 17 or so. Thanks very much. Um, the film is, is built about, about being about assisted dying. So I think we'll just start there and just get your kind of first impressions, if that's okay, of how you feel the film dealt with that particular issue, um, yeah, from your perspective. I, um, controversially perhaps, don't actually think that's what the film was about at all. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> that, yeah. Um, I must admit, I did. I have have seen the film previously. I watched it last week. Um, I thought if I'm going to be on a panel discussing it, I want to know what I'm watching. Um, and yeah, I very much think it was not about assisted dying. I don't know if you want me to expand on that at this point, or we're going to come to that later. Yeah, let's come back to that okay. because I think that it'd be good to get everyone's sort of initial response to to what the film is 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 saying. Well, I'm with Emma on this. I, I actually think that assisted dying is something which is, for Humanist UK particularly, something which is the choice of the person. And this seemed to be very much not about personal choice. It was more about what's best for the country, if you like. Get rid of the old people. Yeah. Mark? I think it's certainly... Yeah, I'd agree with what's been said. I think my feeling would be that... Um, I think it is about assisted dying, and I think what it does quite nicely is it reflects the complexity and perhaps some of the where yeah. the rubber hits the road in terms of if there is a change in the law. And I think that what what happens is that often the argument of coercion is kind of slightly played down a little bit, but this film really tackles some of those complexities very, very well. And in my day-to-day -day work, I see people being coerced, leaned on, you know, their family situations are not ideal, uh, and they're often put in positions where they don't need to be. Um, but there were some lovely moments in it. I mean, there were some fantastic... I love the moment where he was sitting in the car going to be killed, yeah. and his, his uh, nephew has to remind him to wear his seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a very kind of... just a, a nice subtle touch that he could have missed. So. I think it's a beautifully made film, lots of lovely observed bits, but uh, I think it is about assisted dying, but it's about more than assisted dying, for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely it takes assisted dying as its kind of narrative focal point. Um, but for me, a particular type of assisted dying, which is a kind of, you know, because I'd seen it written up as speculative sci-fi, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it kind of, it felt very much to me like a film like Children of Men, mm -hmm. where it's, it's taking us down the road a little way and saying this is where we're kind of headed. And it certainly felt like the film was saying, you know, away from an individual choice of the individual's, you know, kind of right to die how they want to, well, when the government gets involved, this is what it's going to look like. 
Um, and it's very, very much like a kind of an imagination of, you know, not just the government kind of saying that this is now a legal thing that can happen, mm -hmm. but all becoming involved or state-sponsored assisted dying yeah. and what that would look like. And that, for me, felt very terrifying mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of just, just what it would mean because it would mean like every other aspect of our life, kind of malfunctioning, banal experience. Um, so, yeah, I wondered how you felt about, about that kind of aspect of it in terms of that, that kind of speculation about where this question and this idea might be headed, if that's not too big a question. Use that one too. Anyone who wants to <laughs> grapple with that. I, 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 I certainly think that this is far from speculative. I think if you look at what's being debated in the Dutch society at the moment, they've very much been looking at over the age of 70 and dying and tired of life mm -hmm. as an option for doing that. And we do know that there are elderly people who carry cards playing, uh, saying, please do not kill me in their wallets. So we know that there is that coercive element that people certainly feel, uh, whether real or perceived. Mm. But that's really important. This is not mythical. This is mm. happening. And if you look at the evidence, certainly from um, Holland, certainly between 2012 and 2016, there were certainly nine people killed uh, who had autism and learning disabilities who weren't really consented properly um, they were killed partly not because of their underlying condition but because of the symptoms largely related to their autistic disease. So I think that these are not, I think this isn't the near, this isn't kind of a dystopian future. Mm -hmm. This is happening. 900 people in Holland die every year without asking for euthanasia just simply because the law has changed or it is state sponsored. And I think that uh, it's not that the Dutch are bad people. We know that there are violations in Oregon. We know that there are violations um, in, in all of the other places. Oregon is probably the nearest thing to what's being proposed in this, in this country, and that's fascinating. Because if I was ever going to prescribe a treatment, I'd at least want to know what the side effects were or what the issues were. We know that in 60% of the 2,000 people that were killed in Oregon since 1998, there are no figures on complications, not one. If you had to tell me to prescribe a drug for those reasons, I couldn't do it in clear conscience because there's no evidence to tell me. In the 40% that there are, there were 39 people who choked and um, had trouble swallowing, and there were nine people who woke up again, and none of them came back for a second dose. So that's all in the public domain, those figures. I think that's really interesting. I'm not all fair with the figures, unfortunately, on Oregon. And the figures I have to go by are what is in the Humanist UK response to what's going on at the moment in Parliament. Um, what I have been informed is that the, necessi the necessity really would be for a very robust safeguarding policy around any any aspect of assisted dying which was put into law and currently the proposal is that adults i.e people over the age of 18 of sound mind which would possibly not include some of the people who you say have been um, given the assisted dying option overseas and who are incurably ill i.e there's no chance of recovery so they're terminally ill or incurably suffering. So people who've got a condition where they personally feel that their life is intolerable. 
and they would like it to come to an end at a time of their choosing, which is not necessarily the time when the medical profession would turn around and say, you know, this is time for you to go. Um, I know that for myself personally, I'm the only person I can speak for. If I was in a position where I wanted to make the decision to, ch to end my life at a time of my choosing, I would like to have that, please. I, I wouldn't want someone to keep me alive if I didn't want to be kept alive. And I think that's quite a powerful argument for me and for quite a lot of the people who I've heard about who are in the public eye or have been before they died. Um, I suppose the most important people we were talking about are uh, Tony, Tony Nicholson. He had the locked-in syndrome. Mm -hmm. And he actually did say that his life was intolerable to him. He did not want to be alive. And it almost seems cruel to only use medicine to force people to stay alive and not to allow them to die. I think that's probably one of my arguments. Yeah, and under the current legislation being proposed, Tony Nicholson wouldn't have qualified. Which I think is wrong. I think we have to disagree on some things. And I also understand that because you're in palliative care, you... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would assume that you feel that palliative care can be the right thing for anyone who is at end of life and has a terminal illness or is incurably suffering. And I have had family members who have gone through palliative care and it's been fantastic. It's been just right. So I'm certainly not against it. I don't feel there's enough funding into palliative care because the place where that relative died has closed. And we do not have that facility anymore, which is tragic. And now their options are, if you are incurably ill, uh, you have a terminal illness, you have to die in hospital or in another place, uh, often a care home. I think my biggest issue at the moment, and it's quite in the forefront of my mind, is that I work with people who are recently bereaved generally. If I'm conducting a funeral, so I'll go and visit a family, spend a couple of hours with them. And last year, I spoke to a chap who was clearly traumatised. And he said that he had been made to sit with his husband while he was dying in their living room, in a hospital bed, begging him to put a pillow over his face. Mm -hmm. That, to me, sounds like bad medical management. Or, if someone's going to die in two weeks, wouldn't it be kinder to say, all right, well, you can tip out now if that's what you want? I'm aware I've said quite a lot. I'm happy to say a bit more, but I want to give Emma a fair crack of the whip. Yeah, no, I actually think um, it would be really interesting to hear, Mark, um, what palliative care actually means as well, because I think a lot of times we, we think of palliative care as just end-of-life care, and that's not what it is. Um, and I think I think if we can kind of discuss what that is as well, that might be helpful. Um, and... Yeah, and, and, and the whole idea of, of symptom management. Um, and, and I would absolutely agree that um, end-of-life care and palliative care is not well-funded enough, um, 100%. So my, my other role outside of um, my death and dying work, the, my chaplaincy role is in a care home for, um, for older people. Um, so this film particularly ha hits those notes for me um, and, and those real kind of tangible points of of 
of that marginalised part of society. Um, you know, when people who feel like they have no more value to give, um, and therefore, you know, no more contributions to make, um, because often that's what society has said, rather than if you dig down individually with the person, you find out there's a lot more that they can give. So, um, but I think it might be really helpful first if we can just explore a bit more about palliative care and how the balance between palliative care and then assisted dying and things like that. Would that be all right for you to, to share a little bit about that? Yeah, take a step back from that question. I yeah, think that okay. what, what I would say is that um, from my experience of seeing people who are dying, and I've seen thousands of them, if you give them the right treatment, yeah. if you start to treat them in the right way, if you start to speak to them and give them connection, if you tell them that they are valued and they are worth something yeah. because they are them, the number of requests diminishes, but it doesn't disappear. No. Mm. For me, the deal-breaking argument on all of... Well, there's two, two, two arguments on this uh, that are really important in my mind. Is, yes, there is this issue of funding. If we are going to say, let's change the law in this country, why are people asking for it? Why, the, why would people be asking to be killed? And it's actually not physical symptoms that they're being asked they're asking to be killed for. It's a lar largely loss of autonomy, loss of dignity, yeah. these kind of things. And actually, at what point does this become an argument of assisted suicide, which is, again, this is a term, just to be clear, that's not legally recognised. Mm -hmm. It's euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. Assisted dying is something that's been thrown in recently and has no legal basis, just to be clear. Um, but if you are not going to, if people are going to have these issues where they are feeling like a burden, they're isolated, they're lonely, mm -hmm. at what point does that become a societal issue and not a medical issue? And when, and the reason why the director made this film was because she felt so upset about the way that elderly people were being treated in yeah. Japanese society. And I think we need to look quite closely at ourselves. One thing this film should tell us is actually how much do I value my neighbour? How much do mm -hmm. I value the old person across the street? How much do I care for them? How many people are isolated in this? Because that is the, uh, the underlying thing that drives this yes. debate. And if you change the law in this country, three things you will need in order to help people make those decisions. Palliative care, mm -hmm. which is symptom control, psychological, spiritual, social, con social support at any time from the diagnosis to death, not just last yeah. few hours. I see people many years before death. They need psychological support. And if you say to someone um, they're psycholog psychologically suffering and you say, well, that's fine as it is at the moment, you can have your cognitive behavioural therapy, but you'll have to wait six months. <laughs> then we're not serving these people. No. And then the last one is psychiatry. We know depression and quality of life are integrally linked. I've done some of the research. I've looked at all the meta-analysis on this. And actually what you find is that unless you treat depression and give people a fair crack of the whip, Psychiatry is vastly underfunded. Mm -hmm. So you're actually, if you change the law now, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're actually not dealing with the... And the, the, the key question in this was the bit when she was on the computer, I think, mm -hmm. where the, the young lady pushed her out the way, leaned across and went away. And she said, so what's the problem? Yeah. And that's the, that's the mm. question we're not yeah. answering. The fundamental question is, how do we deal with people who are suffering? Yes. And killing them is not an answer for me, a good enough no, answer. I, I don't. I'm, I'm with and you the other that. thing I would say on the other side of that 
is we know from the data that I gave you at the start that if you change the law, people who don't want it will die. There yes. are no safeguards strong enough anywhere in the world. That's simply been said by every par by parliamentary committees. It's been said by analysis from people at the United Nations as well. It's absolutely clear. So if you're going to argue for it, you have to say, well, who's going to die because the law has changed? You have, to, you have to face that question, and that's the dilemma. So I fall, regardless of where you stand on this debate, the question is, do you change the law for those who are vocal and want it, and who are definitely suffering? I've seen it in the whites of their eyes, definitely. I can't deny that they are. But if we give them good care, we reduce that number. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have got some vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. Did you know elderly abuse worldwide is about one in six in the community, one in three in institutions? Are we so not we moving off the topic a bit here? No, I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the context under yeah. which we're saying this. So if you're going to say we're going to change the law and we're going to kill people who want it to have a sound mind, we have to accept the other side of the law, which is that people are going to die who didn't ask for it. But we're that, only that is the evidence. We're only talking about people who are terminally ill or no, incurably, we're not. intolerably suffering. We're not. We're not. One, one in four people in, in uh, Switzerland die who don't have a terminal disease. I think it's difficult because there's a demographic of people who you're discussing who I absolutely understand might be being coerced into making that decision in other countries. I would suggest that that's because the safeguarding is not in place robustly enough in those countries. Um, the data that we have at Humanist UK is that in no country is being a burden to somebody else permitted as a reason for somebody to be given assisted suicide, if that's what you want to call it. Another thing I would like to just point out is that suicide is not legal. So what we're saying is that people who are... So suicide is legal. Suicide is legal, sorry. So what we're saying is that people who are unable to do it themselves are then denied that right to make that decision. And I think that's also a valid point to make, and certainly in some respects. No, I'm, I'm not saying your points aren't, aren't valid. I'm just saying I'm looking at the evidence and saying yeah. this is what the evidence shows. And I don't see on the, on the Death and Dignity website or the Humanist website anywhere saying that there is collateral damage here. And I think that if we're going to have an honest debate, we need to talk about those groups, like those who are difficult making decisions, so people where people are not given proper ways to be given a capacity assessment if they have mm -hmm. learning disabilities, if they cannot speak for themselves. We know that involuntary euthanasia happens in Holland all the time. The numbers are probably underestimated. So, and to think that that would not happen in this, this country is naive. But it's it the Mental Capacity happen. Act, surely. The Mental Capacity Act would have to be focal. Um, I'm, I'm very much aware that... I'm sorry, I'm speaking in you or not, Emma. It's okay. But I would say that um, it's also... It's intolerable that people who choose not to be given an assisted dying are being euthanised, as you describe it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I would say at the other end of the spectrum, it's inhumane to not allow people who are of sound mind, who are clearly terminally ill, to make that decision for themselves. So you have this balance, don't you? You have this balance of those who are of sound mind, and I see those people, I totally get them, I look yeah. them in the white of the eyes, I talk to them, I wrestle with them. Oh, I, get, I get that. But then you have to accept that that's going to happen. 
That's just a simple statement of fact. That's where all the evidence points. Mm -hmm. And that needs addressed by the humanist society and by dignity in dying if that's, this is going to take you anywhere. Because this is where it always falls down in Parliament. It's been defeated heavily every time. I just, just, I just find this collateral damage. I don't have the figures, and obviously I'm not going to ask you for the figures now. You're telling me figures, but I don't have an yeah, evidence base the, for that. These are, these are this public documents, national documents that are yeah. produced. I just don't understand why I would not have that information from Humanist UK if that's the case. It's worth having a look. It's really is. It's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite frightening, actually, some of it. Yeah. Well, I acknowledge that, and I will. Yeah, you know. It's, just, it's really interesting listening to you and then thinking about what the film is doing in, in, in the realm of all these questions because it seems like it's kind of, it's, it's not engaging with a lot of the, the, those kind of specifics which have become, you know, the, a lot of the focal point in terms of terminal illness and stuff like that. This is not, a, this is not about no. that, you know. Um, for me, it felt, it felt very much a film about loneliness. Yes, um, yeah. But not just from the old people. Everybody in the film is lonely. Mm -hmm. We don't see the families of anybody, you know, the, the three younger people that are in there. We don't see their lives. We know that, you know, that the the, the, the the Filipino woman has has a daughter, but she's not with her. So there's that kind of forced loneliness of having to, to leave your country, you know, of, of origin. Um, and that seems when I'm listening to you talk about, you know, where we're ending up, I'm like, well, you were saying st take a step back. And I'm thinking the film is trying to take many steps back and say mm. that this the root of all this is. It is a societal thing. We're yeah. not caring. We're not just caring about the old people, but we're not caring about anybody. Um, we're putting everybody into this kind of way of life, which is only going to end up yeah, with those questions. At the end, they become more and more pressured. Um, but yeah, so that, that that that's kind of what I was responding to very much was 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 that question of how can we ever how can we ever answer these questions at the end? Did Did you notice the one um, the one particular scene where there was a sense of community? And, and where people were helping each other. Karaoke bar. <laughs> well, well, that well. was a group of friends. Okay, yes, yeah, so support of that. And, and, and I have to say this because I am a minister. Um, it was the church. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. that is not for everybody, and I totally get that. And I'm not saying it has to be religion, but a sense of, like, a community, whatever that means, where people gather together and are for each other, you know. And that was... that. What was really interesting um, was... That was the only time where there was a you know a disparate group of people essentially who'd come together mm. for that occasion and 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 the Filipino girls shared about her daughter and so the lady who's clearly the leader um, in whatever you know she's leading that group and she gets up and she passes that tin around and she says we help each other here that's what we're for now that could be a religious group it could be your knitting at a circle it could be your reading group it could be your pub quiz team it doesn't matter what it is but it shows that community is so important and that is where we help each other and I just think there was that real contrast in the film that that was there was the one element of that you're right about the karaoke bar, um, and I thought that was really interesting as well because it's it's only after that you've got these four elderly women who are working together, they're friends, um, and you see them having fun when they're together. And then when one of the ladies is unwell um, and they all lose their jobs because of that, 
that's when that group fractures completely. Um, and that's when the loneliness starts to creep in. It is only at that point that we see the main characters like kind of is broken from every every angle. And it's one thing after another. It's this domino effect. So she loses her job. She loses her friends. She's losing her home. Um, and actually, there is one, other, one space um, in the film where community is shown, and that was the soup kitchen. Um, and, you know, she's sitting on the outside. She's not ready to kind of go in there yet and say, I'm in need of this support. Um, but the support is brought out to her with, with the soup. Um, well, well, but the thing about the soup kitchen is that it's, it's Plan 75 soup kitchen. Yeah. It's a, it's a marketing exercise. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But there is the bowling. The kids, which is yeah. bowling, which I love that scene where yeah. the kids, the, the young, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks. And just to reflect on that as well, the um, jumping to the end of the film, I don't know if you noticed, but when she's, she's sitting on the bed, um, when the young salesman guy comes in to find his uncle, and it's when they lock eyes... And she then knows, she's she's seen and recognised. And that's when she takes that mask off finally. And that to me goes, she's gone, hang on a minute. I, I might not mean something in the way that I thought I meant it. Like, I haven't got those friends around me that I did. I don't say family and all this kind of stuff. But that salesman remembered me. I am a human being. I am a person. I do matter. Um, and it can be something as simple as that. Um, but I think that, for me, that was the trigger for her taking that mask off and actually getting up and leaving. So how do we feel about Uncle in the bed next? To Because obviously, you know, for me, the, the end of the film kind of comes down in, in two very distinct ways. You know, you've got these two old people who we follow through the film towards the same end and, and one reaches the end that is kind of the, the the set end and one doesn't you know how do we feel about uncle and and, and his kind of arc um and, and where he ends up because for me it felt much very much about this is someone who is very aware of what they're doing and why they're very matter of fact about their life they know their place in it as they as, as they experience it and it's very much about the nephew's unwillingness to to let this happen I think for me that just highlights that these things don't happen in a microcosm. We are all linked, and I think yeah. that there are ripple effects to these things. And I think even the the nephew who had bought into Plan 75 mm -hmm. was fascinating to watch his response and almost watch the edifice crumble a little bit around him. And as he talked to his uncle, it, it, he, he wanted to dissuade him, but knew he couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, but in some way... He was, I mean, the irony for me is that he almost treated his uncle better in death than he did in life. Mm -hmm. That was the kind of, like, that was some kind of redemption, if you like. I don't know. Again, you, you just wonder what, looking at the uncle's character from, from professionally, I kind of wonder, well, what opportunities was he given? Yeah. But also, <coughs> looking at the kind of man he was, there's many people who wouldn't have engaged with anything I'd asked them to take mm -hmm. on board anyway. So it's just, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was a really well, really well done character. And I think it kept you slightly guessing at the end whether they were going to go out and do something nice or whether he was going to, um, yeah. but mm -hmm. as I say, the seatbelt touch was, was just mm -hmm. really, really well observed. I think we're at a point now where there are two, two different arcs to this discussion. And I think it sounds like we're all fairly agree in agreement about the fact that our society is failing a lot of people mm -hmm. and whether that's financially or socially or medically or whatever it is there are a lot of people who 
are not doing well in our country. And it would be lovely if everyone could have a warm and loving family around them, but sadly, obviously, that's not the case. And I suspect you're absolutely right, and there are a lot of people who do feel that they're a burden. And I can understand your reluctance to go down the route where you have evidence that that person could end up being euthanized when it's not their decision. And I really get that. But personally, I think there must be a way that we could formulate some sort of policy in this country on assisted dying where those who are going to die anyway do not have to die in pain or from starvation and dehydration because the only way they can die is to stop eating and drinking or be forced to do so by the medical profession. And I find that just as sad as the people who were losing at the other end of society where they're not being cared for in any respect. I think if I, I'm going to take my own thoughts and feelings on the subject out of the equation and just from a practical point of, and, and from a practical point of view say that I agree suffering at the suffering at any point but suffering particularly in, in last stages of life is horrific I've sat with countless people as they've died I've done bedside vigil I have seen really great death experiences and I've seen some really horrible ones um I think if we could achieve that, we would have done it by now. I cannot see a way that we can do it safely, that we can bring in that legislation in a way that that is safe for everybody. Um, I think we've, I think we've, I wish I wish for those people who want it that we could, but I, I just can't see how it can be done. It's it's almost like we're sacrificing people at one end or the other. And do we force people to die inhumanely because we don't have that legislation in place? I, I personally think there, there could be a route to do it. I'm not a palliative care doctor, so that means that I'm one step away from what Mark does. So I don't see that often. I have seen a good death. I've seen a few good deaths. Yeah. And, you know, by the time you get to my age, you've had a lot of relatives who die. And I don't have a problem with being people with people when they die, as you do. Um, but I do come across a lot of people who've had to sit and watch their loved ones die in pain. And it's traumatised the people who are left behind as much as being a problem for those who've died. No, no I totally agree. I think that, that that's certainly one of, one of my major things that I do in my work. Is, and I believe we do in palliative care is try and change the narrative. Mm -hmm to those stylized ones that you've given of people starving to death, being forced to do this or yeah. I, that. I in my work, those are things I don't recognize. And I think if you look at um, complications from taking the medication in the 40% who, uh, who gave figures, it's roughly around 8 to 10% had complications. <laughs> I can tell you that we don't have that in our hospice. Mm -hmm. We do better. So I think there's a very, very strong argument for investing uh, and giving palliative care the kind of funding that it needs. Um, and giving psychological support, the funding that it needs, giving, um, but also social services. Yes. I mean, it's such a huge thing, you know, um, in terms of keeping people interlinked and connected and, you know, uh, but also as a society, we, we've, we've kind of forgotten how to deal with suffering. And yet, yeah. and yet, and yet, and yet there's so, there's people, people, we can learn so much from people in that situation. And it doesn't mean we leave them there, of course, but do you know what I mean? It's such a, it's, 
I'm Am I right in thinking Pope John Paul II said that in palliative care people should acknowledge the fact that they shouldn't have as much medication because then they can suffer like Christ did? Yeah, well, <coughs> I don't believe that. And I just, that's not so, certainly something I wouldn't agree with either. Um, the, you know, We're all in agreement. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm aware that we've been sort of hogging the conversation and I want to yes. make sure that the audience have the chance to respond uh, and ask some questions. So has anyone got, yep, yeah, we'll start there. The first question is about the role that grief plays in the film. Yeah, and, and, and obviously raise the, the, the information about the child she lost uh, when she was yes. born. So I think there's, there's a, a number of instances in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Do we want uh, any response to that? In a past life, I used to be a psychotherapist. <laughs> and I've come across a lot of people who have unresolved grief. And I know the effect that that can have on someone's mental state. And I can appreciate the fact that when Mark says that people who are depressed are more likely to want to exit this life, I think that's absolutely right. But I also think, again, it's coming back down to money. You know, the funding isn't there. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. There was a lot of unresolved grief in that film. Particularly, I felt the woman who had, I think it was Misha, her name? Yes. And she'd lost her baby. Mm -hmm. And all the way through that film, you saw her reaching out without saying anything to people who were young, who could yes. have been her children and grandchildren. And I thought that was tragic. Yeah. I, I think um, not only do we need more funding, we always need more funding. It's a society issue. And, and events like this are brilliant things that actually use the word dead in the title, um, opening the discussion about talking about death and dying and opening the discussion about talking about grief means that in our day-to-day -day life, we'll be able to feel more comfortable doing that. At the moment, grief is still a huge taboo. We don't talk about it. Um, and if you see, you know, we still have people who will see someone grieving, so they'll cross the street because they don't know what to say to that person. Um, you know, just start with hello. That's, you know, that's fine. Um, again, you know, I, I, I deal with many people um, who have, who are recently bereaved. I, I'll visit a family when someone has died and, Almost always, one of the first things that comes out of my mouth is, how are you doing? And then I go, that's a stupid question. You don't need to answer that. And I think as long as we know that we're going to make mistakes and we're going to say things that might not be the perfect thing to say, um, to just talk to people um, as and when they're in those situations um, and making it normal. Grief is an absolutely, massively normal part of life. Um, and we need to normalise that in society and normalise talking about it. Um, and I think through that, um, we'll see some changes. But it's, but it's a massive work in progress. The next question was about the law and legislation and the human factor in relation to those ideas. That's a really important point, but again, I think there are two things there. One is, I think they'd have an extraordinary turnover of staff, mm -hmm. <laughs> because if humans are put in the position where they're working pe with people who are basically putting their lives on the line for money, for the good of the country, they weren't doing it because they wanted to die, they were doing it because they'd yeah. been told that it was going to be good for, the, for Japan. Um, and also they'd get a thousand dollars to spend on something nice and for a lot of people that might be an incentive you know if they had a really difficult life but the other is 
We do have, they're not analogous situations, but it took a long time to get the abortion law through. And there have been some court cases where I think it's mainly fathers who've wanted women to not have an abortion. But the the laws are in place where if two doctors agree that a woman is of sound mind and able to make the decision to terminate a pregnancy, then she can do so, generally in this country. They do need two doctors' signatures. And that's the sort of thing that assisted dying policy would also have to have in place. The current suggestion is that there is a time lag between the two unless somebody is likely to die imminently. Um, I, I th yeah, I, thank you. I, th I, th I think that's a really helpful comment, and I'm just struck because I know that you, you were a policeman once. That, that there's something, <laughs> there's something more about how you enforce legislation, yeah. and how you how it actually works on the ground. And I think um, that I'm, 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 my, my, I was chatting to my brother once, and he said he said laws can be as um, they can be as a general in their use, but extremely personal in their effect. Mm -hmm. And I think this showed some of that. I thought that was quite. It, it was it was well illustrated but again it's the machinations you've got to assume that everyone understands so coming back to your point which i think is a good one about the the mental capacity act and for those who don't know that's a way that you assess whether someone is of sound mind and it's laid down in legislation but all the evidence suggests that people are not very good at it yes. that we do mm -hmm. not do it very well mm -hmm. and again you don't want to put the cart before the horse because if you put the cart before the horse what you find is you get people making decisions about the wrong things in the wrong way and that touches on this as well so legislation i think you're right is too clunky and uh, too dangerous I think it raises a really interesting point in the context of this film specifically, so not just the general topic, but in this film. We've already looked at the, that those who are signing up to Plan 75 are um, people who are feeling lost and lonely and vulnerable in those, in those ways. Um, but when they interact with the, um, their relative or the person that they've met on the other end of the phone and we see that they come alive, um, and we see that the, the two young people um, see the difference when these are human beings, as opposed to a name and a number that is filled in on a form and or, um, you know, when just listening into the training and the, train, the, the new trainees are being told, you must keep, keep them on track because many of them will decide to change their mind, but this is for the good of Japan and this is, you know, we've got to keep people on track. Um, and it, it, it's dehumanising in that sense. When people are made to feel like valued human <coughs> beings, there was a big difference all around. I think it's an intentionally dystopian view oh, of what would happen. And I think it's a really useful starter for a conversation on the topic. Because, But I also think that it wasn't about assisted dying as much as perhaps it was suggested it would be. I've yes. not seen the film before. This is my first screening. Yeah. I think as well, yeah, that it's it, it, for me. It had lots of really lovely provocations about, you know, it just every time I was like, oh, it's it's kind of it, it's it's saying that it's about this. Then it, it kind of mm. introduced all these other layers. I think it's a really beautifully written piece of work about that kind of tension between, you know, the abstract, mm -hmm. the idea of okay, well, I'm someone who this is my job and I can see how it works, and then the personal it, it comes in, yeah. which it does for everybody in these, you know, because this is something that is always going to have a personal impact. Um, I, I did just want to raise on that as well, that there is a huge class component here. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. About, you know, who are these people? Um, well, they are people who are, you know, working, you know, as as cleaners or, and, and living in very kind of basic 
situations, you know, that those are the people that are being coerced and invited into this program. You know, there is the Platinum Club, apparently. But Which none we of never women, see. None yeah. of these women can never afford the Platinum Club, despite... But it's an aspiration, isn't it, to die mm. in a certain way. Um, and, yeah, the, 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 there are huge swathes of this population of that age for who this is not is not a yeah. factor in their life. And I think the film did that beautifully by its absence yes. of, of, of mm. those people. Um, yeah, there's one right at the back. Yeah. The next question was about autonomy, suicide... And when assisted dying moves beyond being something discussed only in terms of people with a terminal diagnosis. Age isn't a policy. Uh, age is not uh, a factor for as far as Humanists UK and Dignity and Dying are concerned. The, there is a minimum age of 18. And so you have to be an adult and considered by medical professionals to be capable of making that decision because you are a sound mind. So if assisted dying was brought into legislation in this country, then under the legislation as we see it as a, a possibility, then if you were 30 and you had a terminal illness or were incurably um, suffering, then you would have that right to make that decision. It's an interesting question, but if you weren't suffering, you could commit suicide. If you I wanted to die, you wouldn't have to, this would not be an, uh, relevant to you. I think I think it's in, I think it's interesting. I mean, I heard a really helpful phrase recently that said that autonomy is a a great servant but a very poor master. In other words, autonomy can help you make a decision, but if it's the only thing that helps you make that decision, then it's probably you're not weighing up things properly. Because there is another side. There's the justice side of all of this as well. And in terms of looking at around the world, which is the best we have at the moment, we know for example, uh, that Canada's are already changing their law. Uh, we know that they're extending the ways in which people can... So from March of this year, they've said that people who are mentally ill can do this, uh, they can, can, can be killed if that's what they want to do. Um, we know that in Holland they're looking at... It was limited to 12 to 18-year-olds or babies that were disabled were being killed under the Groningen Protocol in 2005. And we know that they've extended that to children of all ages, provided the parents are in agreement with this. So that's it, 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 that 65 observation is a really key one in terms of the debate. It falls into that thing, the slippery slope, but I hate that phrase. I think it means too many different things to different people. But looking at the data, there's certainly some very strong evidence that would suggest that they're trying to, even in Oregon, they're trying to move it so that families can then go and pick up the medicines for the patients or that other people can be present. It's kind of being watered down so that the safeguards are being less and less. So don't call it slippery slope. Just have a look at the data. Have a look at how things have changed. And then you get to a point, say, in Belgium, where you can then say, when I, if I get dementia, I want to be killed. Now, even if you're happily demented at that stage, mm -hmm. you'll still be killed. And, and that's just... So there's all these little creeps, and I think that's in the nature of humans. That's in the nature of law. Just look at how we all treat, or how people can get creative around tax law. Yeah, oh, <laughs> legislation will money. be Legislation will be <laughs> circumvented, yeah. and it will yeah. be extended if it's thought to be not. So I, uh, that's, that would be my very strong view about extending. So sorry, that was a rather long-winded answer, forgive me. And I do agree that, but again, if, if you're talking about people who are depressed and mentally ill, then 
the issue isn't about assisted dying. In that case, it's more about what support are they not getting? And that, again, is back to money from, from government. Yeah, and only 2% of people in Oregon who were killed got a psychiatric assessment, and yet there was cases of had major depression in that situation. So the safeguards weren't good enough, in other words. I think we, um, in this country, need, and probably lots of other places, need to um, take a step back, uh, again, another awful phrase, before we, we before we go forward into saying um, let's legislate for assisted dying, um, let's actually educate people on what their choices currently are, and educate educate people on like you know what you actually can advocate for for yourself whilst you're alive and whilst you're well. Let's educate the whole population on making advanced care plans and advanced decisions to refuse treatment and you know and in your advanced statements for your preferences. Let's educate people on those kind of things so that that you know we might get to a stage where actually. Um, the assisted dying might not be as needed because people might go, actually, I didn't know that I had choices and control over, and I know what I'm not. I, I know this. This is not going to the extreme of cases where there where there is suffering that cannot be. You know, the, the cases that you're talking about. I, I, it, but but there's an awful lot before that. I mean, in in this room, how many people have a, an advanced care plan in place? How many people have done an advanced decision to refuse treatment and 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 an advanced statement of their wishes? Uh, and where a you know where a room full of people who are clearly interested in the subject of of death and dying, or we wouldn't be here. Um, so so you know we need to start thinking about those things. Um, and yeah, anyway, that's one of my hobby horses. <laughs> the difficulty with that though, that even if you've got that advanced care plan in place, it can't allow for you to exit this world at a point where no, you choose. No, you're right. It can't. But but there can be a lot of other. It, when we know what is available to us and what kind of treatments are available to us for us to either choose yes or no to, um, and when we're more aware of what a good end of life might look like in many different situations and what treatments are available, then there are, you know, we, we might not need to go down that route. I'm conscious of time, so I just want to have one more before we wrap up. The final audience contribution gave a perspective from Cyprus and also brought up the concept of terminal sedation. Is that an option here? Um, <clears throat> suppose it is, I mean, sedation is a very slippery term and it depends which country you work in and how you use it. Um, yeah, we're, uh, we're suffering at the end of life with a terminal illness. It's, yeah, it's very, in my experience, it's very rare that we would use it, we audit exactly what we use in terms of sedation. But we use it like a, I think probably the best, better analogy I find helpful is we don't use sedation as an on off switch. We use it as a dimmer switch. Yes. So if it's, you know, if you get people mildly sedated and then sometimes they just feel, that's fine, that's all I need. And that's most of them, actually. You just give them a little bit. So sedation is the wrong word. They just relax a bit. And then they can still talk to their families. They're not do-lally or spaced out. And if you need to, you can turn that up or turn it down or whatever. And we, we make that very clear. And you've got to say, well, what's the intention? And I think this is where it gets slippery. So... Um, if, if your intention is to still kill the patient, you are still ethically killing the patient. If you're trying to deal with their suffering and you're just doing that, that's called double effect. Yep. 
the unintended side effect is that they are killed, but you're actually trying to deal with their anxiety. So there were various different things that would happen. But actually, I found that, you know, dealing with things in a round, I find that that's something that I don't have to employ, as you say, very, very often. It's, but, but exactly, it's, it's an option that you can, you can deal with the distress, yeah. often if you just explain to the people that there is that option, because they're so scared of suffering, they're so scared. Yeah, I agree. But when someone says to me, I'd like you to kill me, which they do, yeah. I say thank you. You're telling me two things there. You're telling me, number one, you're suffering. Mm -hmm. The second thing you're telling me is that you trust me. Yeah. That's something we can maybe work with. That's great. Mm. Seems like a... Uh, a good place to end um, this conversation. Obviously, we're not ending everything. Um, <laughs> we haven't solved it. We haven't solved it. Um, but we've done our best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I should probably be careful of my terminology as well when I'm saying that. Um, but thank you so much for your insights, uh, our audience. Thanks to the Tyneside Cinema. Thanks to Stacey at uh, uh, Death Futures, and um, thank you to Andy from the Dead Good Film Club, and thank you to our brilliant panel. Thank you, everyone. So a fascinating conversation there on the film Plan 75, which I managed to see as well, so I can have a frame of reference to talk about it. That was the film that I had uh, an absolute nightmare trying to get to see, but I did manage to find the right time and, and see it. So, uh, yeah. And I, I did enjoy it, and I thought there was the, the starting point of the Q&A was interesting in terms of what they thought the film was about. And then, you know, the, I... There wasn't really much of... I mean, I think one or two people said, oh, they enjoyed the, the, the film when it did this and when it did that. And I suppose, you know, we were just talking off mic about how so many films are about death in some way, shape or form, or death, if it's not explicitly about that as a as a core theme, it shapes a narrative in some way. You know, probably all films have that, right? Um, but there... You know, it was interesting not having a film panel who weren't kind of like digging into specific aesthetics or performances or narrative structure or anything like that. Yeah, and I just wondered, I, I wondered actually, Neil, how you felt about sort of dealing with the, the Q&A because there were, you know, there were specific perspectives that I think that the, the, the speakers wanted to get out before taking into account of the film, if you see what I mean. Or, or they were reflecting on what their position was yeah. and, and how it inflected through the film, I suppose. Yeah, it was really interesting. I think one of the reasons that I was curious to do it was it w I knew it was going to be a different kind of panel. Like, I would ne never moderated a panel like that. You know, normally it's just film people talking about film or, or music people talking about, you know, like, so it's there's always there's always a kind of comfort for me in terms of that. So it was... I was kind of curious as to how it would go and what what it was going to be like. I think, you know, and maybe maybe that was my, you know, sort of preconception of those positions and how people might feel, you know, coming from those positions and having to sort of be on a panel with people who had almost the opposite or, or very different, you know, knowing how, yeah, how difficult this this topic is and this idea is, you know, and how you know particularly on a panel with people who spend their life around it you know they spend their life with people who you know want to take their own life um or families where it's a question and you know and 
they just know so much more about the you know the politics and the the legislation and the the kind of the emotional you know impact of that than I do so it was, it was yeah there was a kind of curiosity um and a little bit of nervousness you know of like you know how do these things go is it going to be and I think you know maybe that, again that preconception was thinking that we live in an age where everyone just argues with each other all the time yeah. and no one's willing to listen and no one's willing to concede and no one's willing to bring other viewpoints in you know and I think that's a lot of kind of social media prejudice you know and certainly a kind of like mainstream media prejudice of listening to the radio and having those yeah. kind, you know but so it was really. It was a question time moment of, well, I don't have those stats, and yeah. you know, it's a bit. <laughs> I thought, oh, this this might go a little bit wrong here. Yeah, but but it was a generous audience. You yeah, know, it was yeah. a generous panel. Yeah. You know, I thought, no, no, that that was really nice. Was that people were were not coming to fight. They were not. You know, they were coming to hold their position and sh- and share their position. So that, but but they weren't coming to fight. You know, they were, and I think there was a lot of listening, and there was real really nice atmosphere in the room of you know i think as well you know probably more people like me because the the audience was kind of half people from the conference but half people who come to the film club and i think one of the reasons people come to the film club is for these kinds of conversations not necessarily for conversations about the film because i think a lot of their panel discussions are these kinds of participants you know so it's about absolutely it's about opening up the conversation around death for you know in in this context and using film as and that's what andy says using film as a way to start that conversation rather than always bringing it back to and that's what i said you know when i when i said the i would do the q and i was like well i know that if we see the film we can talk about the film yeah yeah yeah. so what else can come out of a conversation where the film is the um almost the starting point yeah yeah, Um, yeah. and it was really interesting and to hear you know particularly a couple of the panelists kind of just reference back and see how they had you know sort of crystallized or further sort of evolved some of their ideas based on the things that the film was saying particularly around us at the start in terms of the direction of travel that society's in yes on subject i definitely think though alongside that what you're talking about which is obviously the sort of main purpose of of this kind of q a though was the fact that that they did talk uh, about the film in ways that i i thought were absolutely on point in terms of you know th- this is as much a film about loneliness and about society's reactions to people to who don't fit into you know the, the 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 capitalist productivity economic unit model of what a valuable life is yeah. you know and the, <laughs> the obviously the biggest group of those are people at the end of their life who are who are retired you know we're going through that question now we're an aging society and you know, if you've got money, that's fine. You can be looked after. But if you don't, then you are sort of seen as this leech or drain mm. on 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 society. And that question of what what how do we react to that as a society? What what do we do about that? And it's clear that not just in Japan, in this country as well, that we do not want to fund care and and we do not want to fund a context that is going to allow those people to have. Not just dignity, but just a kind of basic sense of being, you know, valued or a part of society, you know. Yeah. And that's it, it, it seems that that's like totally individualized. However, I mean, and, and this is probably my criticism of the film. I think that the, the and, and again, maybe it's not, maybe it wasn't as agitprop, anti-government, you know, because you'd read this as a sort of really libertarian piece that that sort of says governments are whatever they do centralized government is always gonna you know be 
problematic to to people and their autonomy and their individuality. Um, but I suppose it was a sort of you know neoliberal corporate intergovernment connection that was creating this in, in environment. But it's it really is an interesting question then about about what these kinds of policies, what the the outcomes of them are, and how much we take for granted decisions that that become normalised. Yeah. That actually, when you look at them, are quite you know horrific in many ways. You know, and they just we, we just sort of kind of use that bureaucratic sheen to be able to say, oh, this is just this is just normal. You know, yeah, yeah. And it's normalised until it affects us, which I think was one of the nice things about the film is that there is this sense of being swept along by the, you know the capitalism of it all yeah, yeah yeah you know and you know like with the with the, the character whose whose job it is to work for this company and then when it's a family member yeah it becomes a different you know they, they they see it from a completely different way which i think is how a lot of you know the conversations around death go you know it's people talk about it all the time but they talk about it in kind of abstract ways and often until it, it it's something that they have to face you know um you know the, the, themselves and everybody faces it and the interesting thing I, I mean, is as I, I enjoyed it in the moment i thought the film raised a lot of interesting questions but over time it's kind of didn't really stay with me you know i think it, it didn't really know what to do with a lot of that stuff which i think is is, is fine i think they were kind of interesting questions but i don't know if it knew where to where to follow it's kind of that's the point i think co coherently in terms of the character arcs it seemed a little bit sort of incoherent or abstract in that in that sense where you know there's times when it went to the it, it went to the mother with the baby who's in a different country yeah and you're kind of like oh we've gone in this and then the way it got back seemed to be just kind of like quite abrupt yeah. but I, what i liked about it most is, is was the little the little sort of symbolic moments or the the peripheral businesses that grew up around this policy were just like really interesting and it's just it's clear how you see the sort of tentacles of capitalism sort of growing around this central idea around you know the you know voluntary euthanasia essentially yeah. you know yeah, yeah yeah and that question of like the relationship between loneliness and assisted dying i thought was was nicely sort of suggested yeah you know that that, that yeah like a lot of the because you know we you know you read all the time about the kind of the loneliness epidemic you know but the the fact that yeah that the, the lack of care at the end of life and loneliness is gonna you know has the potential to lead to what the film is saying which is essentially yeah what what are we going to do with these people if we don't care about them yeah. you know um and i think what that's what i that was one thing that sort of has stuck with me is that is that relationship where yeah it's basically saying like you know we, you know because i think you know i think mark on the panel was saying like you know this is where we are now this is not a kind of future thing but i think it was certainly suggesting that unless we kind of address this social care loneliness aging you know thing um then we're yeah this, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. where we're, we're headed because it is a kind of surplus that's the way it's sort of seen as a kind of surplus of people and i thought that was that was the thing that stayed with me I, and the other stuff kind of hasn't hasn't resonated yeah i mean I, I suppose just to sort of wrap up the other thing that really struck me was the the on, on the film the difference between generations was um depicted in some ways as as, as a kind of way out or a maybe a, a redemptive moment mm. you know where they've yeah. got these younger characters i mean one of them works for plan 75 obviously but he has this kind of when it's his own family that it gets 
visited to he suddenly has sort of you know second thoughts and all this kind of stuff and then there's the the, the girl who worked on the uh the call center element of it or yeah. the support element yeah. who ha has the relationship with the the older woman and i think that, that the film tries to posit those as 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 possible lights at the end of the tunnel and i thought that was interesting because i think we're going in the other direction and i think that the possibility of a policy like plan 70 plan 75 coming in in a country like the uk would be on the back of the antagonism between the generations mm. and the fact that you know we, we the, the the segment of society who is retired is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the younger generation feel more and more and more that they are paying for you know this life this yeah, yeah. this very comfortable you know not for everyone don't get me wrong i know there's a lot of you know older people in poverty but there, I, I think that there is a sense that the, the, young, the younger generation is getting shafted. And I'm just wondering whether there, would, there might be a tipping point that would lead to a policy like this. That, yeah. that, that, oh, and it's definitely, it, it definitely leads to the policies of the retirement age being extended. I don't think young people... I mean, it's funny. I think that, they, that, that young people are, are resigned to it now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Certainly that, you know, the students that at university, you know, sort of have a different idea of what their life looks like. Um, and there, a resignation, I think, is a good word for it in terms of like, yeah, you know, that, that not not going to own a house. I'm going to work till I'm eighty. You know, it's kind of just it's there, isn't it? You know, in, 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 in not in all of them, but but certainly in a in a significant proportion. Um, and that's where the film starts as well. You know, it, it it starts with yeah, kind of physical violence against old people. Um, and yeah, the opening film made me think it was going to be a very different kind of film where yeah, the, the young people are sort of taking almost vigilante arms against old people um, because of their drain on society. And then sort of Plan 75 is a way of, yeah, sort of dealing with that more than, mm. you know, as much as it's... Sort of yeah, no, that, I mean, it, that's true. It did, it did start with that. So yeah. I'm not saying that it didn't sort of but I agree that, that I agree, I agree but, that, yeah. it, but it gave that the coming together of the generations as as the as the redemptive possibility yeah. oh yeah it's just yeah almost as if to say that you know if we just understood old people more yeah then we wouldn't hate them you know which is kind of what the, where the film sort of starts no oh, interesting yeah no so uh, a, a great episode thanks for putting all of that that together and uh yeah different sort of vibe i think on on you know from previous q and a's which is always interesting to uh to to listen to so thanks to you thanks to beth and everybody up there at the conference for uh, allowing us to do that yeah thanks to stacy um who's part of the death online research network thanks to andy at dead good film club and andrew at the Tyneside cinema yeah had a really nice evening um yeah and uh, yeah I'm glad to be able to put it out lovely so we will be back very soon there's uh, going to be another episode a much more filmy episode <laughs> Uh, hot on the heels of this one but um, until next time this has been the Cinematologist Podcast thanks for listening